Thanks for pressing play. In 2015, Inc. Magazine ran a story with the headline, quote, American entrepreneurship is actually vanishing. We had a small business and startup crisis then. That was 2015. As we all know, C-19 has made it a whole lot worse. As a matter of fact, Steve Hamilton, an economist at George Washington University, estimates that 42,000 U.S. small businesses had closed permanently as of July 2020. Now, small businesses account for 99.7 of all of the businesses in the United States of America. And according to the U.S. SBA, small and medium-sized businesses generate 44% of U.S. economic output. And uh, the SBA also says that small and medium-sized businesses account for two-thirds of new hiring. So no matter how you want to slice it, small and new businesses matter. And uh, it's been a very, very dark time in the United States and, frankly, in much of the world for small and medium-sized and new businesses. And so we thought it would be cool to ask Scott O'Malanik, who is the editor-in-chief of Inc. Magazine, to come and talk to us about the state of small business in the United States. As you probably know, Inc. Magazine is a premier publication for entrepreneurs and small and medium-sized businesses. Scott is actually optimistic. He thinks that now is a great time to be an entrepreneur. He believes the, quote, someone's got to do it attitude that legendary entrepreneurs have is exactly what our world needs right now. And on this episode, uh, we dig in deep to the state of entrepreneurship in America and how Inc. Magazine is digging deep to empower American entrepreneurs. Also, pay special attention to Scott's ideas on finding what he calls the through line in your life. My friends at NetSuite are the number one cloud business system, and they are the foundation you need for building a legendary business. Check out netsuite.com slash different today. That's netsuite.com slash different. And the value of data goes up every day. And that's where my friends from Splunk come in. Splunk is the leader in data to everything, bringing data to every question, every decision, and every action. Check out splunk.com slash D, the number two, and the letter E. And go to lockhead.com and uh, subscribe to Category Pirates, the newsletter for people with a different mind. Now, hey-ho, let's go. Why do we have so many douchebag, scam artist, what I like to refer to as hustle porn podcasters in the business world? I don't know if you've had this experience. You know, you do the pre the, the pre podcast like we did. And then the host guy, it's almost always a guy, t- is talking like this, just normal people talking. And then they press record and they go, hey! Welcome to the Douchebag Nation. And now we got Scott from Inc. Magazine. Let's go, Hustle Nation. And, and you're like, what the fuck are you doing? Yeah. Yeah. Why, why do we have so many of these hustle porn stars <laughs> who play this crazy Tom Vu asshole on their podcast? Right. I mean, I think they've been infected by disc jockeys and talk radio over the years. And and they think that is what is going to attract people to them. And in some cases, look, to step outside of the business world for just one second, I'm sort of a true crime podcast junkie, which is interesting because I'm, I grew up w- with a lot of violence and abhor it in many ways, but somehow, no, well, in all ways, I should say I abhor violence, but somehow true crime is fascinating to me. And I will or will not listen to a podcast, no matter how compelling the story is, if, if it's someone who's behaving in a way like you're talking about. If it's clear there's an act, and I think we intuitively know when people are acting. And that's why I keep coming back to this matter of authenticity. You know, before I took the role at Inc. as its editor-in-chief, I ran a brand a few years ago called uh, This Old House, which is the public television show that has been on for 40-some-odd years now, a magazine and website, and a couple of shows, ultimately, one in Spanish. But the, the original cast of that show were contractors, and they were a bunch of uh, motley guys 
in plaid shirts from outside Boston, working class, and they had the accents to prove it. They were not anyone HGTV would hire for one of its shows, right? And yet, four decades later, those guys are still going strong with five times the HGTV primetime average the last time I was involved uh, with it, right? So why is that? It's because they're not actors playing a role. Uh, They're not trying to ham it up for the camera. They are who they are, and they're more believable for it. Right. And, and so it makes uh, that's that's why for me, there's just such a profound difference in conveying information and doing it authentically. And, and that really, really, really matters. It does to me. Now, all of that said, Scott, it seems to me just sort of as an observer, I don't know shit about the media business. You know, people invite me to do all these things. Oh, how to do a legendary podcast or a book or all that. I, I feel completely unqualified. But anyway. So, but as an observer and consumer, it seems like Inc. has done a really great job of moving to the digital world as a, as a former analog product or just analog product, so to speak. And it seems like you've been able to figure some pretty big shit out about how to uh, make a difference in a very noisy entrepreneur business media world. Could you shed some light on that for me? Yeah, I, I would say thank thank you, first of all. And I, I think we have too. So that, that's good to hear. I, I'm not the only one. I, I, I would say there are a couple of things at play there. And one is that Inc. had established a credibility with its audience a long time ago. And it did that by having as its purpose, you know, this idea that it would support the American entrepreneur and, and small business owner. And what did that mean? At first, that meant a print magazine that that told stories of success, uh, stories of redemption, recognized people who were doing well. And and it's my mission to to keep that brand purpose intact, support the American entrepreneur, but not be constrained by the pages of a print magazine or even a single website. Uh, the idea of supporting the American entrepreneur can come in lots of ways. So, you know, in this past year, for example. When COVID hit and businesses suddenly watched their uh, <laughs> revenue streams dry up, uh, we were able to use our website to give small businesses free advertising sp- space. We gave away millions of dollars in advertising space. We were able to use our purpose of supporting the American uh, entrepreneur by partnering uh, with the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and having a weekly town hall around the original stimulus package in PPP. And we did that for a couple of months running. Um, We were able to tap into all of the entrepreneurs we've actually helped throughout the years. And I'm talking about people like Damon John and Mark Cuban, really successful, successful people, and have them join us for a week-long streaming event that we would have done in two nights at some point to celebrate being 5,000, which represents the 5,000 fastest growing companies. Instead, we turned it into basically the equivalent of, you know, Olympic broadcast week where we were on dozens of channels as a viewer, you could pick who you wanted to watch at any given moment and ultimately had 500 blocks of programming that we did in that week and reached not the 1,500 people who might have come to an in-person event, but 25,000 people. And some of that came out of my uh, background and I had a, a bit of a broadcast television background. And and some of that recognition came there. But the the main driving idea is we're here to support the American entrepreneur. How do we do that? And and that can be in a lot of different ways. Uh, Right now, we're looking at brokering uh, or making introductions between people we know who are are, our audience who are looking for financing and PE firms who are looking to dump money into businesses, right? That is us supporting the American entrepreneur. So there's so much opportunity when you think of it that way. It becomes a really exciting playground, you know? And that's what it is. Not everything will succeed, but it's fun that way. But what a different mindset from saying, oh, we're a publication or a media company, right? Yeah, I don't, you know, I'm sure someone can be comfortable doing that. I'm sure there's a business out there that can survive in that way. Obviously, niche content is important in many ways, but but I also think if you're a larger brand and you have the opportunity, actually you have the obligation to reach beyond, there is your company and there's your, your business, right? I guess it's how I would describe it. And, and I don't think this is my idea. I actually think 
a, a business consultant named Magnus Penker but came up with this. But but the, the idea is basically that your company is, is who you are and what your brand purpose is. So that's Inc. and that's uh, supporting the American entrepreneur. Your business is one time at one point in history, a print magazine, another point in history, a, a website, and maybe adding podcasts to that. At a third point in history, it might be selling data based on who that Inc. 5000 is. And we have to be cognizant of the fact that as a company, our lines of business will change over time. And if they don't, you are a blockbuster or your Kodak or you know a lot of other companies we could point to that didn't properly evolve. The last horse and buggy manufacturer. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, I'm sure there still is one, but, you know, they're not sitting on a big pile of cash, I'm sure. They probably don't have Tesla's market cap. No, they do not have Tesla's market cap. <laughs> I mean, Tesla shouldn't have Tesla's market cap right now, if we're, we're being honest, <laughs> um, which I think is greater than all of the other automakers combined. Right? Oh, by a huge factor. That seems yeah. a little speculative to me. There's a bubble there, I think. But, um, but nonetheless, uh, yes, um, moving to the new space is, is an important thing. Being always aware that there's a new space is an important thing. Yes, absolutely. Those who do not design the next category will be the victim of the current one. <laughs> and and that, that next category may be designed by someone entirely outside of your traditional competitive set, right? And and media learned this lesson the hard way. I, I was in one of the many uh, screw-ups in my career. I, 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 I'm very bad at managing up and talking to my bosses in a way that is, well, tolerable to them, frankly. <laughs> so Most, uh, most enfant terrible uh, people are like that, Scott. I kind of get that impression that there's a little bit of pirate in you. Well, uh, I, I, would, I, would, I would think a kindly pirate, I would hope, people thought. But I can remember when I, I was at what at the time was the world's largest uh, uh, publishing company, part of the world's largest entertainment company. So it was Time Inc., part of Time Warner. We were, uh, for the first time, going to put our magazines on the iPad, which had just come out. And the impetus or, or sort of the direction was to basically create PDFs and the complete linear structure of, of a magazine and put that on the iPad. I had the benefit of at that time, this old house was owned by, by, by Time Inc. And so I, I had the background of having the sort of moving picture aspect of my brand. Um, and, and I said, look, that's, we can do that. that, that that's, that's easy. But th this interface allows us so much more. We can have, you know, we can have links. We can, we can do video. Um, there's lots of stuff to be done here b because we're not just competing against other magazines. We're competing against, you know, I don't know if Candy Crush was out, but pick a video, you know, mobile game that was popular at the time. Uh, you're, you're competing with just one click, the entire web, right? The entire internet and all of humanity's knowledge. So you have to do better than just come with your own experience uh, and the one you've been delivering. And that was a place where there was a realization for me, and I talk about this to businesses all the time now, is that your competitor isn't necessarily that other magazine company, that other software company, that other flower uh, shop, whatever it is. It could be someone very different who upends the whole category and connects with consumer behavior in a totally new way and takes them right away from you. You know, it's so interesting you say that. Uh, we've just launched a new newsletter we call Category Pirates. And one of our most recent letters that we worked on is about this company, this insurance company, this new model insurance company that's redesigning the category called Lemonade. Do you yep. by chance know yep. who they are? Yep, absolutely. And one of the interesting insights around them is this is a category that almost everybody hates. And yet, when you step back and think about what insurance really is, it's an extraordinary human innovation because it allows us to take risk in the present and de-risk it in the future. So we can afford to put a meaningful percentage of our net worth into a house because if something happens to that house, we get protected. And sort of the aha of Lemonade was people should think that's fucking awesome instead of hating it. 
And so they redesigned the category around some new principles and new business models and various things. But it's sort of an interesting thing as you sort of look at what they're trying to do to redesign the category and realize there's an entire set of mega corporations who just accept the fact that consumers hate them and they just decide to compete on price and features. And it takes a startup like Lemonade to say, People should love this category, and if we if we redesign our business model and come up with a whole new way of doing things, they'll fall back in love with insurance, and they become the the, the flag bearer for the category, and everyone and just else accepts that people hate insurance, and it, it's so fascinating to me that that almost always comes from a new or a small company. Yeah, it's it's you know that the. the leadership in most large companies fall in love with their current revenue stream and they don't see how they're going to move from that uh to something else right that is you know and they're you know i i teach entrepreneurship in a business school and and i'm sure you know just through your reading there are lots of these case studies uh, you know how solid state memory upended the floppy disk and uh, stuff like that because that that audience or that opportunity, that market size seemed too small at the time. Um, and, and I think it's a lesson in there to business owners is that one, to not just pay attention to their own business, but really need to understand uh, what other people are doing and and what kind of traction they're getting in the market because small uh, small steps at first can suddenly sort of you know become much larger strides and, and suddenly you're, you're outrun. And it happens in industry after industry after industry. Yes. And there's another surprising thing, uh, which is how often um, that comes from an industry outsider. You know, we just had a podcast recently uh, with Gloria Huang, who is the uh, founder of Thousand Helmets. Mm -hmm. And it's a simple idea. It's, it's sort of a fashionable, with a bit of a retro vibe, great looking helmet focused on the new mobility space. So e-bikes and scooters and the like. And so it's a very, it's niche down in that sense. They're gorgeous and they're so comfortable. You forget you're wearing them. Well, anyway, she starts this thing on Kickstarter. She niches down on the new mobility category and her company is on fire and she's doing an amazing thing. And she was in the philanthropy group at Tom's Shoes when she came up with this mm -hmm. idea. Mm -hmm. It's not the major bike companies like Giro and you know, helmet companies and the like. It's a gal who, in this case, lost a dear friend because of a head injury and, and, and is, was a cycling enthusiast and said, somebody's got to do something about this. And here she is changing the world. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think that gets back to what we talked about uh, with respect to authenticity, right? Like the, the place that she was coming from was an authentic, important place. And the, the the revenue probably was not the initial set of calculations she did that came after, right? Whereas the people who are sort of stuck in, in legacy businesses are calculating the revenue and you lose the opportunity uh, when you only do that. Well, that's to your point on, you know, uh, my buddy and collaborator, Eddie Yoon, calls it the distinction between mercenaries and missionaries how Gloria came up with the name Thousand was she said, wouldn't it be amazing if we could save a thousand lives a year? Yeah. Yeah. Right. And ultimately, she'll do far more than that. Right. Yes. And not just save lives, but like just protect people and allow them to be cognitively functional. Right. I, I have to, you know, I'm a cyclist and I have to say, um, <laughs> the mobility, the micro mobility space terrifies me a little bit because of the number of people I see get on scooters or bikes, uh, and go as, you know, go 35 miles an hour with no head protection and a, a five mile an hour impact to your head, um, can, you know, make the difference between living normally and being bedbound. Uh, so sh what she's doing is an amazing thing and ultimately will have a profound impact. And I think that's, really exciting. And we see this over and over and over again, right? We can talk about urban farming and vertical farming, right? Because <laughs> I am about five or 10 miles from uh, Newark, New Jersey, where the largest indoor farm is right now. And and what they're capable of, the the amount of, of productivity they can have relative to traditional farming is astonishing. But that business was not built by farmers. It was built entirely by someone else. And I don't mean to uh, dismiss farmers. I like them. They're good, 
we they're, like they're farmers. <laughs> <laughs> they're good, uh, earthy people or something. But but I, I, I what I'm talking about, you know, like uh, sort of ag, big ag, ag, right? Big agribusiness is going to get upended by this. Um, and again, we see it over and over again. And it, it to me, it's exciting and it's cause to be optimistic. I think, you know, we're living through a fairly dark time right now. And, and I am not by nature, I would say, the most optimistic person in the world, but I am remarkably optimistic by watching businesses solve really significant problems and sometimes solve problems that we would normally have the government step in and solve. I see businesses solving, and that's just astonishing. It's great. It is exciting to see. So I, of course, absolutely want to dig in with you about getting your analytical sense of where we are with small businesses in the country. But given that you just brought this up, I, I sort of have a theory that's emerging in my head based on a lot of things that I've learned from our guests and many of the, the entrepreneurs and venture capitalists I spend time with and so forth. So I want to test this out on you and see if you think this is right. Although we've been through such a horror show in 2020, uh, both, of course, as humans and as an economy, uh, we hear about maybe 50% of the restaurants are on the verge. Uh, you'll tell me, but I've heard anything from one in five to one in three small businesses. So I want to get the snapshot of that. But all that stuff, all that horror show there, it strikes me, Scott, that never before in the history of humanity has the future been sitting there sort of begging for us to create it, that everything's up for grabs. There's innovation, there's, there's newness, there's new categories, new technologies, new approaches, new ways of thinking, just new mental receptivity to trying a different way. In almost every domain you can think of, you know, my, my Zoom cocktail party question with friends these days is, name me one thing that's not going to get either changed or materially accelerated by C-19, go. And so the mantra I've been on, particularly with entrepreneurs, is the future needs you, man. Like the future is begging for us to write it. The future is not the fucking weather. It doesn't just happen. You know, it, it happens because an entrepreneur like Sarah Blakely says, there's got to be a different way. Or there's an entrepreneur like Eric Yuan, the founder of Zoom, says, we can do this differently. And he transforms the world. And, and so many other stories we could point to, Gloria on the helmets, on and on and on. And so I guess the question I have for you in that regard is around your optimism do you see this sort of opportunity that this sort of future is sort of yelling at us to say, hey, come and create me over here? Uh, 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 or or uh, am I relying too much on uh, Scotch and Mary Jane? <laughs> uh, no, I think you're absolutely right. And and it's ter and, and I think as part of that, we tend to underestimate and one of the classes I, I teach as a professor we talk about the power one individual has or can have to completely change uh, what we've done. And, you know, I hate to use the most obvious examples uh, and, and particularly ones that might be a lightning rod for some people, but just to, for one moment to talk about Steve, Steve Jobs and it doesn't matter what he borrowed from Xerox Park or any of those things <laughs> or, or, or whether he took advantage of, of Steve Wozniak or any of that stuff. The, the fact is he, he had a vision for a particular set of, of, of tools for us. And, and one of them, you know, I'm, I'm communicating with you now via one of them and, and the other, the, that, that phone, which, and, and I used this as an example because the 10 year anniversary of the iPhone had been at the time I was teaching this class created an entire economy around it. Millions of people working now because of, of, of that phone and millions of others racing to catch up. Right. So one person is, is, is capable of, of driving so much change. We see that with Elon Musk in, in many ways across a bunch of industries. Um, we can set aside also his personality traits we might not, not like and the mistakes he's made. Uh, but the fact is that he's advancing. And I think there should be a realization for everybody that we're all capable of that. Uh, we might not be comfortable with it, it might be in our nature, but it's a possibility. And today, circumstances are such, uh, our access to technology, which we talk about a little bit like in a magical way, but I think it's important to, to recognize that, you know, if you're an archaeologist, um, Silurian technology was an era from, you know, 30,000 years ago where people were chipping 
rocks, right? Like, like to make hand axes or, or whatever it is people did then. The point is that technology has a definition of really just being a tool. And, and I think if we sort of demystify technology a little bit and just think about them, technology as tools and the tool set we all have access to now, it's remarkable. And, and now add on the fact that we were in a time of the ability to communicate with people via that technology in ways that were very difficult before, bottlenecked before by owning a printing press or a broadcast studio or what have you. The ability to communicate your message so much faster is astonishing. And that becomes very exciting. And you're absolutely right. I am also an entrepreneur in residence at a venture center. And the number of young people I see who who have ideas for, you know, cinder blocks that do carbon capture or plates in the road that create kinetic energy that can be stored in a battery. So much of this stuff is just amazing and there's nothing stopping them from doing it. And, and, and I think that's what's interesting about a crisis like we're having. For some people, it opens their eyes to opportunity. Others are forced into exploring new opportunity because their old business, uh, their old job went away and they have to do something. But the fact is, you can see it as a a wall that you hit and don't get past, or you can see it um, as opportunity. And I feel like more and more do see it as an opportunity. And then the last thing I need to say about this is that I think that old mantra of move fast and break things and disruption and and all of that stuff, there was carnage in the wake (laughs) of that, right? Not all advances are good. We could have a very long discussion about, you know, the pros and cons of social media platforms and what they mean. But I think there's an increasing awareness among entrepreneurs of how important not just profit is, but the people who work for them and the community they t- or the impact they together have the, on the community they're in, and to me that is what uh, makes me so optimistic is to see an understanding of people who have an idea be willing to work with a team of people who are equals to them, not human resources to be exploited, and understanding that whatever they do, there's an impact, and and they're going to try and ameliorate the worst parts of that impact and and, and elevate the good parts. Amen. Hallelujah, brother. <laughs> Now, now, pre-COVID, you know, I had been tracking some pretty uh, sobering stats from Brookings and others about about entrepreneurship. The Wall Street Journal, I, I believe it was three, it might even be four years ago now, declared, quote unquote, the crisis in American entrepreneurship. Yeah. And, and you look at data and you see commentary from learned economists and so forth saying that we were at the lowest point in recorded American entrepreneurship. And all of these sorts of horrifying stats and and government regulations and all the reasons why and generational shifts and all this stuff. And so I was t- sort of as somebody for whom, you know, some people, uh, entrepreneurship is a way up in the world. For me, it was a way out. You know, I got thrown out of school at 18. I'm dyslexic. I have dyscalculia and all these other things. I call it dysfuclia. <laughs> and so... <laughs> I, I was either going to do manual labor my whole life or start a company. And so my relationship with entrepreneurship is not exactly a distant one or a cerebral one. It's a guttural one. And so with all that said, Scott, maybe walk us through what has happened in the last year or so to entrepreneurs and our entrepreneurial businesses. Yeah. So I, I, I think that challenges to entrepreneurship do still exist and 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 they're not going to go away until we as a society uh, do something about them and it is why we see countries like Israel or Sweden with a fraction of the population not even 10% of the population in the United States be re- represented in an outsized way uh with startups and and I think that has a lot to do with the social safety net frankly um it has to do with not graduating with $200,000 uh in student debt my students when they graduate yeah they're going to go to work at Goldman Sachs or uh, McKinsey or someplace like that because they they have a lot of money to 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 pay off someone who's 40 years old is going to be worried about their health insurance and if you don't have the universal health care and a family, you're going to be more concerned about how you're going to provide that because entrepreneurship is a risk, right? We know that nine out of 10 businesses don't last five years. So I, th- I think, though, uh, that, is, that is a given and we have to think about that and what that means. We also have to think about our immigration policy because the simple fact of the matter is immigrants 
uh, as as founders and and CEOs of even the Fortune 500 are far overrepresented relative to their uh, broad population. There's something very interesting about that, and something uniquely American about that. I think. I, I hate to interrupt you on this one, but you know, I'm an immigrant to this country from Canada. Although I don't know if Canada counts as being an immigrant, you know, <laughs> it's sort of like yeah. you know, we're 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 definitely a cousin. We we might be sort of a a slightly weird cousin. <laughs> we're, <laughs> we're we're close, but so I'm not sure that's a pure immigrant. But anyway, that said, it is fascinating, you know, because I've thought about this, Scott. I've been in Silicon Valley for over 25 years, and I've worked with in excess of 50 venture backed startup companies as an advisor and and you know CMO of a handful of companies and blah blah. Anyway, just sort of in as I think about it, I would guess. More than a third of the legendary entrepreneurs I've worked with and maybe pushing up on a half are not native born Americans. And so I'm very curious what you think of why is that so? And then, of course, the follow up question is why the fuck aren't more Americans accessing the incredible opportunity called being an American? Yeah, I think I think because there's another opportunity that comes with being an American and that's uh, being a little too comfortable and able to be a little too lazy, right? And and I, it's not to say people who work 40 hours a week or more, 50 or 60 hours a week are lazy, but there are different paths. And if you're here, uh, if you're second generation, third generation, fourth generation, uh, there are more established paths for you to follow. There's an understanding that you will have gone to school and the right schools and a, and a belief that upon graduating those schools, you'll take a certain kind of job. Um, the American immigrant experience is, is different. And it, it's interesting um, to me to, to uh, mention another Canadian who I'm, I'm good friends with. Uh, he and his spouse have lived all over uh, the world. And he, uh, he actually has, his clients are largely based in North Africa now, but to start his own business, he, he did it here in the tri-state area and outside of New York City because of the energy that it just exists here in our business where people, the opportunity to move and the belief that it's possible and the welcoming nature of it when, when you do succeed, right? So, so they're tapping into that. But I think most immigrants, right? They don't have that level of comfort, that level of safety, that generational understanding that you're going to buy the house, you're going to be comfortable. And so the gambles you take are bigger, right? I, I'm, I'm reminded of my wife's grandfather who at various times when he arrived in the United States, he was, uh, you know, and we don't like to talk about this a lot, but he was implicated in the, the game show scandals back in the 1950s um, as, as, a, as a press person and a television producer. But he also owned a broadcasting school. He also owned an airline at one point, which has like these outrageous gambles, right? My own grandfather, the same thing. He was someone who grew up in the depression, was uh, an auto mechanic, ended up owning uh, a couple of transportation companies, a construction company, grew to be very prominent in the town. And and it was all because like, well, someone's got to do that and I'm not doing anything else. Might as well be me. So to some extent, I think we have built in, unfortunately, and, and we talk about this a lot with millennials and even Gen Z, where we've, we've built in on this understanding that, you know, that the, the everyone gets a trophy kind of thing or the take no risk, protect our child kind of thing. While that's nice for them, it's it's good for them. It also robs them of opportunity ultimately, I think, because, uh, you know, that regular uh, role seems so much more comfortable than, than the riskier one. Uh, but the riskier one is what pays off. I have a theory about where we went wrong on this, where it started. I think it started with the invention of the plastic doohickey that you stick in the socket. <laughs> you know, it's interesting you say that because when I was two years old, I, I played truck driver um, and I took a key I found on the floor. <laughs> and yeah, I, I, I'm told I uh, rolled across the room. Uh, and how many times after that did you do it again? <laughs> I did not do it again. I, and I, so I there's not. something about the nerfification of life. Yeah. And to me, I think it started with that product because to your point, when you and I were kids, if we fucked around with the light socket, we paid a price and we didn't do it again. And now we, and look, I understand why we protect our children from this. I'm not a complete <laughs> yes, moron, 
But at the same time, there is an element of, hey, yeah, go stick your foot finger in that thing and see what happens. That doesn't happen as much today. <laughs> I think it would be great if we could become more uh, risk tolerant for everybody and that we understood that uh, particularly among younger people, you don't have to go from this school to that school to that internship with that GPA to get to that job, that, that, that the, the, there are a lot of really interesting paths you can take to get to the end. In college, I was a, a studio art major. I was an oil painter until one day I, I had a lovely art history professor uh, named Carol Small who said to me, you know, I, I think you might be a better writer than you are a painter and maybe you should just think about that <laughs> and and i i looked at her and and you know i i was just you know maybe she was right and you know so for me there was you know i can look at my whole career and, and i think it looks like it's utterly unplanned and disastrous and there's there's no no maintenance there at all right or 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 but ultimately, each path I've taken has has been one that seemed to make sense the next time. And and I think in the end, I was better for it. And that's not to suggest I'm, I'm a remarkably successful person or that I'm uh, financially beyond comfort or any of those things. It's just that my life has proven to be far more interesting because of that lack of rigor in what what is it called, you know, career management. Yes, you and me both. <laughs> Now, where do we stand with small businesses, Scott, in, in the U.S.? We're now plus or minus a year into this uh, tragedy. What's the state of the nation, so to speak? I think from what I see, business very much sort of mirrors the way COVID, the pandemic, the disease itself has impacted people, which is to say some people have been hit very hard by it. Some businesses have been broken. Some will go out of business. Many will go out of business. Others will be completely untouched and others still will see their most successful years ever. And some of that is down to luck. You know, if you are a restaurant or hospitality business or travel business, there is not a lot you can do, right? Uh, you can sort of pivot and, and make the most out of delivery and things like that, but it's still quite a different ball game than it than it, than it was. Uh, and certainly, if you're a hotel owner, you're you're not in in great shape or an airline for that matter. So that's just you were in the wrong business at the wrong time. In other cases, we've seen people do remarkable pivots and smart pivots. And I'm reminded of a, a, a woman, an immigrant, a Korean woman who actually to put herself through school so her parents wouldn't be saddled with the debt, worked at a car dealership, which at her age, she's uh, in her early 50s, was sort of remarkable to think that a woman could work at a car dealership 30 years ago and, and be taken seriously, um, but she did. And she learned stuff about selling cars and, and a few years on because she she knew that she had a more opportunity than just selling cars. She moved into some management at automakers. Ultimately, she created a product, a digital ad product that had a seven or 10 time return uh, relative to traditional car advertising. And she made our list of the Inc. 5000. She was in the top 100, actually. But of course, that was based on 2019 numbers. 2020 was a very different year. And suddenly, everyone stopped buying cars. They didn't stop with e-commerce, however. So she transitioned her model, not just to be automotive-centered, but started branching out to other opportunities and has had a remarkable year because of it. And I'm so happy with her. She's actually talking about whether or not she should be selling the business, filing a small cap IPO, whatever. It's terrific. Another company I'm reminded of is someone uh, called Globalization Partners, which used to facilitate HB1 visas, right? Uh, uh, which uh, was a business that obviously the last administration made difficult, but then of course the pandemic made even more difficult. They they helped with the onboarding of those those workers. They had a realization that they had all this skill in onboarding physically, but it wasn't so different from onboarding digitally. And, and now we could source people from all over the world, not worry about a visa, not worry about paperwork uh, of, of that kind. And suddenly the entire globe was her market and the talent around the whole globe wasn't just those who who made the grade to stay in the States, but, but everybody. 
she's had such a successful year because of that. She's considering an offer of hundreds of millions of dollars of investment. So there are these amazing stories out there among the carnage. And ultimately, it comes down to, I think, these characteristics that most entrepreneurs have and taking advantage of those characteristics rather than just sort of pursuing that idea, getting back to the idea where we talk about, you know, there's the company and there's the business and it's seeing what the businesses are or could be for you. Entrepreneurs are clever. They're resilient. They can be told no and hit their head against the wall a bunch of times and come back trying again and again. They figure out how to make two pennies equate to a nickel. There are lots of things entrepreneurs do. They you know, get people to believe in a dream. And if you can maintain all of that stuff now in the face of great hardship, look at what people want and how we're changing and, and assume that some portion of that is going to stick going forward. There's tremendous opportunity. And again, this gets back to me being optimistic because I think as hard as the year has been for some, there's always opportunity. Uh, in, in that, you know. And, and if I was one of your readers or maybe one of your students and I came to you, Scott, and I said, I want to be one of those entrepreneurs like you just described. And maybe my business has gone through a very hard time here. I'm one of the people that got whacked through no fault of my own, right? It's, it's hand of God shit. What would you share with me about sort of breaking through and uh, taking this mindset and, and accessing it so that I could actually create a business for the future that sits in front of us. Yeah. So I talked a lot about brand purpose earlier and, and I, and I think there's an equivalent. And in fact, I'm working on the outline for a book about this right now. So I'm sharing it with you, Christopher, but don't steal the idea. I know you, you know, you have a couple of bestsellers (laughs) on your shelf. I, I don't need you to have a third and me not have one. So, um, uh, I, I promise if anything, I'll help you promote yours and not rip it off. Believe me, okay. I got enough ideas in my head. I don't need your, I don't okay. need to steal one of yours. So fundamentally, right. I think all businesses ha- that, that have potential to be long-term have this brand purpose. When I was at this old house, the initial belief about the brand was, oh, it's about remodeling, right? It's about tradesmen doing remodels. Actually, what the brand purpose of this old house was to make people feel like they could confidently have a safe space for their family. And sometimes that involved contractors, sometimes that involved a remodel, sometimes it was about paint and pillows and, and a new kitchen faucet, right? It didn't matter. It wasn't about the big project. It was about creating a safe space for your family. We realized that and spoke to that. The business blew up. It did terrifically well. Inc., Again, supporting the entrepreneur. We have so much opportunity because of that. I think people have their own brand purposes. Um, when I look across, and, and, and this is why I encourage people to do this, is sort of look at all of the roles they've had, look at the things that they've succeeded in or have them made them happy or that maybe they didn't succeed in, but wish they were able to succeed in. And, and I, I look at my own career, there is, and I say this is what I would call a failed entrepreneur and a failed entrepreneur. I had a, a startup that went sideways or pear-shaped, as they say. Um, but, but when I look across the landscape of my career, I see that there's always me interpreting information to engage and entertain people. And so that was true when I was making television shows. It was true when I was a magazine journalist. It was true when I was trying to get my former employers to see that there was an opportunity with a mobile game for this old house, which by the way, uh, they did not see. And our business partner went on to book with another partner, $75 million in revenue a year later, right? So that's why I'm a failed entrepreneur and, and why I have a hard time managing up. But there's there's a thread through your life, right? And it's tapping into that. I, I, I realized this, if, you, if you've ever seen um, James Corden's Carpool Karaoke and you get the opportunity to see the one uh, with Paul McCartney, I just think is so astonishing in, in so many ways. And I don't want to ruin it for someone who hasn't seen it, but I, I suggest you watch it if you do, because you see Paul McCartney singing in a car for one person with James Corden and like bringing James happiness and sort of joy around the passing of his mother. You see Paul McCartney with his hat on a curb in Liverpool in front of a bus stand busking and, and playing a harmonica for a handful of people. And then ultimately at the end, you see Paul McCartney in a pub where a sheet drops and there he is for a lunchtime crowd. 
to play a set of songs. He's 77 years old or whatever, 50 some odd years after Beatlemania. And he's still doing this, right? The, 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 there was just this idea that, you know, if Paul McCartney didn't have any musical chops at all, and he was a bus driver, he would still have this passion or need to bring joy to people. And there was some way that was going to come out no matter what. So I think there are these through lines in our lives that we all can key in on. And so I ask people to think about what that is in their own life and, and to tr really try and find out what it is. Because once you discover that, that's going to tell you what you do next. That is my path from magazine journalist to television person to founder to professor and back to uh, a place that put business and and journalism and all of that stuff professing back together, right? I think that, that, that those those through lines matter. And if you can discover those, you have sort of superpowers to draw on because that's where your passions are and that's where your abilities are. And if, if you can pivot in a way that takes advantage of those, uh, you know, that's that's really terrific. So I, thank you for that. Um, I have seen that uh, carpool karaoke and it was striking to me for all of those reasons. Mm. Uh, there's one other thing, and I, I want to talk to you about more what you said there yeah. beyond Paul McCartney. But before we leave <laughs> him, the other thing that amazed me was how much Paul McCartney seems to own who he is in a very powerful way. Yeah. Uh, on one hand, when you watch him, interact with people and you see it you see it brilliantly in that in that piece he knows who the fuck he is he's the greatest songwriter of all time there's no question about that yeah. there's absolutely no question about it um and so and he doesn't deny that he's paul fucking mccartney sir paul mccartney right yeah. but at the same time there he's humble he's human uh he's relatable he he feels like your favorite uncle maybe and so there's this incredible thing around, he knows who he is, he knows all the accolades, the, you know, sell more, all that. And at the same time, he's humble and he's real and he, he feels like he gives a shit and he's very purpose oriented. And I, that experience of him shows up in that video in a very powerful way. I'm wondering if you noticed that. Yeah, I, you know, it's so interesting that I thought about it, uh, I think in the same way, but with different language. And, and it was that he embraced and did not try to run away from what his gifts were. And it, he was not, you know, he was not the actor who wanted to be a director or the comedian who wanted to be taken seriously as an actor or wh whatever it was, right? Like he, he, he was an amazing pop singer and entertainer who was comfortable with that and willing to stay with that. And, you see that in others too. Like, you know, I, I think it's apparent whenever you see a, a Bruce Springsteen concert. Now we sound like two old white guys talking about old, old white guys, but, uh, the enthusiasm and, and the ability to impart joy among people like that is just so astonishing. And it's because they're not cynical about it. Right. And, and I think they're aware of their gifts and they appreciate having had them. And, and, and I would say that if you can do the same thing, you can be aware of your gifts, appreciate them uh, as an entrepreneur you can put them to profound use. Yes. And just to make it a little less old white guy of, of note, regardless of your political affiliation, uh, there were moments in the Biden inauguration that have to be acknowledged. So of course, Amanda Gorman had yeah. literally changed the world in a matter of moments with her words and her delivery of those words. <laughs> I, I would be lying if I, if I said I didn't tear up uh, at that point. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. If you don't tear up, then I don't know, maybe you're not human. Uh, for me, I've always been deeply inspired by Lady Gaga and she did it again. Yeah. And then to me, the final performance of Katy Perry's, that might've been the greatest performance of anything ever. I mean, of course <laughs> she was dramatically aided by maybe the greatest light show of all time, better than any kiss light show. <laughs> <laughs> we we had a lot of fireworks saved up <laughs> from the pandemic, right? But, you know, her voice, the way she conducted herself, the timing of it when she raises her hand and the fireworks are going off and she looks like Lady Liberty. I mean, holy shit. Uh, you know, in this case, we saw three women performers lift a nation. And even if you're cynical about politics and Biden, you certainly got to take your hat off to those gals. 
Yeah, I think they did a, a terrific job. Um, and it was, a, a, to me, a, a, a really lovely moment that uh, I actually gathered the whole family around to watch. Uh, so I agree. Now, I want to go back to you. You talked about something very powerful in all that, which is this through line of your life. Could you sort of pop the hood on that one for me a bit, Scott? <laughs> it depends on how deep you want to go. So um, I'll chase you down any rabbit hole you want to go down. <laughs> So I tend to think there's a, a, a compliment to this idea of a through line. And it's actually why I sometimes read astrology, why I read horoscopes. And it, it's because there's the opportunity to use them to interpret what's going on in your life, right? Yeah, I don't take a horoscope's prediction seriously, but when I connect it to something that's going on in my life, I think, wow, that must be important to me. And I'm just not thinking about it more, more clearly, right? So I, I see some of this in my, my own career. So I was, uh, I put myself through school working as a as a carpenter and quite possibly could have been the the way i i spent the rest of my life but on a whim uh, listening to professor carol small about being a better writer than painter after graduation and after working as a carpenter for a year i applied to journalism school the day it was due and managed to get accepted um but that was some time coming yet i went to work as a garbage man. I was a garbage man in, in the garment district in, in New York City. We don't call ourselves um, garbage men. You know, you're a, a waste management or a trash hauler or whatever. Are you a waste management consultant? Is that? Yeah, something like I, that. I remember anyway, sanitation engineer was and, popular for a while. That, that's a, <laughs> that feels a little pretentious to me. I'll stick with waste management. Um, you know, and, the, and, and whenever anyone asks you how, how business is, you say it's picking up. That's the other part of being a garbage man. <laughs> that's um, funny sorry, years I'm, ago I'm... i did some consulting for the folks at base batesville casket who's one of the top manufacturers of caskets and their head of sales told me a similar joke at the time he said whenever <laughs> anybody asks us how's business we say it's killing us <laughs> um oh man uh see then we now we're in the, like the dad uncle joke territory this is you're gonna have to scrap this whole interview um uh, but what's interesting is that, you know, my first job out of graduate school was at, at GQ, where I, I went from pulling garbage out of fashion houses at that time, 7th Avenue was Fashion Avenue and, and, and a big deal to, to being uh, the fashion writer for, for GQ. And some little piece of that experience f followed me. So so I, I went to work at GQ uh, as a journalist. I traveled over to Esquire magazine, another men's magazine. Um, as its youngest executive editor. And at the time, being honest with my own consumption habits, I thought like, you know, the internet, this is relatively new, the internet was, you know, like, I've spent a lot of time on some of these the websites. I guess we call them websites. I don't even remember now. But uh, I decided Esquire needed to have one and, and built the first one that it had. And then I left Esquire for a television opportunity. I, I um, was... Uh, one of the, and I apologize for this in advance, worked with the team that uh, created the original Real Housewives franchise. We have I, you to thank for that, Scott? <laughs> well, not entirely. I was one of, and and we were actually fired after, so, so the karma is here, we were fired after year one. Um, so you got what you deserved for your sin? Is that yes, what you're telling ba me? <laughs> basically. And, and, you know, this story is that the, all of the all of the money that that we were paid to create that first version of the show, where by the way, people were completely inauthentic, um, and 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 real people came to the camera uh, playing roles that just were astonishing to us. So um, they weren't very real on the first Real Housewives. I, I I don't know that they still are, right? But what happened was we put all our money into the production, thinking we'd get it back out in years out so we didn't really make any money out of it and at the end of that first year uh, we were told and it was a work for hire an independent producer it's a work for hire right you don't really have skin in the game we were told th thanks but uh, we can't really afford to produce this uh, anymore and then of course the the next season it was back on the air and so i have i and and it's it's primary creator and anyone else associated with that first year never uh, really um saw any financial benefit, which I suppose is the price you pay for inflicting such punishment on a nation. <laughs> uh, but I, I used that experience, I used the digital experience to return to big media 
as uh, the person who's running this old house, right? So suddenly this television background and uh, this digital background and a traditional media background uh, and, and the fact that I had worked as a carpenter all came together to, to let me run this old house. And there, I think, uh, seeing what my gr- grandfather had done as an entrepreneur, ultimately, you know, uh, sort of not as successful as he could have been, but struggled to, to build a couple of companies. I, I took that same, well, someone's got to do it attitude and, and, and sort of was fairly well known for the idea of, you know, not being a traditional media person, but someone who wanted to explore new opportunities. And for me, that meant everything from, gosh, QR codes are a thing. Let's see what we can do with those. It was a mobile game, as I mentioned before. What do we do with that? How how do we make video more understandable to people online? Because at the time, there wasn't a lot of video. Uh, how do we do e-commerce, a company that we I, I tried to, to sort of arrange the purchase of that was actually killed on the day of signing? Its entire team migrated to the company that was to become Wayfair. So like there were lots of things like that where I was looking more at like how do I take this business I have now and how do I squeeze more out of it by doing things that seem interesting to people and they were all they were all adjacent to what we were doing right so this old house is about the home of course e-commerce around home stuff made sense as an attachment to that a mobile game that was about building a house and breaking pipes and all of those things of course there was an opportunity uh, there all of these things made sort of sense, at least to me. I learned there, though, that, you know, to, to a C-suite, that they don't necessarily, risks are not something that C-suites like to take, generally speaking. It compromises their pay package, their compensation, ultimately, if, if they risk wrong. And that allowed me, though, to maneuver this old house to a place where we were able to sell it to private equity. And that experience pushed me out on my own, where I thought, with a partner, I was going to have a little bit of a growth equity firm of my own and, and use all the experience I had to prop up independent producers, small websites, small magazines with an infrastructure. Ultimately, that fell through. Our, our, our financing for that uh, fell through, but I took those same principles and decided I was going to apply that to helping other companies who found themselves besieged during digital transition or being out innovated you know media was one of the first companies that sort of took it on the chin through through digital disruption and i i thought with my experience having survived it in a, in a way having a positive sale to private equity or a successful sale as they say to private equity and not a fire sale could help other companies and at the same time thought you know i like talking about this stuff enough i should be paid for for it and became a professor and that's what i did until the opportunity to put all of those things again back together and run the ink business and really connect in a much more significant, wouldn't just have two or three clients at a time, but we'd have thousands of people we could talk to at a time. And that became really exciting to me. And so I rolled back into ink uh, that way. And I'm curious, Scott, you know, I've talked to a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of business leaders about this over the last year or so. I certainly feel this and I feel this, more now at this moment than ever before. So look, maybe I'm getting confirmation bias, but let me bounce this off of you. Do you feel um, a greater sense of purpose or a greater sense of mission now than at other times in your career? I think I've always been respectful of the fact that people were paying money to consume content I produced, and that was something special. I think What's different now is that the people who do that and the people I interact with support fully 50% of the American economy. They are the people who are hiring, not laying off to make a quarterly uh, stock prediction. They are the people who are building the future. And as you said, the future is out there to be built. It just doesn't come to us to exist. So the sense of responsibility I have, yes, I would say has, has grown. Um, but the honor that goes with that has grown too. I feel incredibly privileged to be able to talk to the people I do and to communicate with people like you about these ideas because they're ones that ultimately, not through me, uh, but by someone else, uh, have the potential to really change the world. And I think that's exciting. 
you know, I, 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 I'm not a doctor. So th- this seems like we're, this seems like a, you know, <laughs> the next worthwhile thing. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I think we've all learned so much as a result of the pandemic. And one of them is uh, the greatest contribution we can make, although we can make financial ones and, and so forth, is to contribute the thing that we're most expert at, the most passionate at, the most skilled at. And so if you're expert at inspiring entrepreneurs, then now's a good time to do that. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, you know, like I said, that there are people who want to be entrepreneurs and that's very exciting. There are people who are going to be pushed into entrepreneurship and that's okay too, because they have great opportunity more than they may realize and, and helping any of them. You know, I talk about the Inc. 5000 and small business and that half of the economy, but the simple fact is that lots of big businesses that everyone knows the name of have graduated from from that class, right? They're they're Chobani and Under Armour and Facebook and Microsoft and all of these other companies that started out as small companies that kept going. And so the ability to participate in that conversation and to shape uh, uh, opportunity going forward is, gosh, that's so exciting to me. That's exactly how I feel too, Scott. Um, now, is there anything else you'd like to touch on before we wrap, brother? Oh gosh, I, I don't, I don't know. We talked about a lot, and I p- figure people are pretty sick of hearing uh, of, of me from me at, at this point. The good news is the only person that listens is my mom. So, <laughs> well, that, that, that's that's good, my because my mom hasn't listened to a single one. It makes me a little <laughs> sad, but that's that's the way it goes. No, all I would say is uh, it's 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 been a pleasure, and thank you. And I hope, I hope people can be as optimistic as we seem to be uh, about uh, tomorrow. I mean, sometimes I wake up and I think, oh, fuck, it's going to be how much longer until I get my vaccination and then everyone else does. And it seems so much, you know, six months now seems so much longer than six months did six months ago. And uh, and, and that gets me down. But the idea of, of you know, that people could be as optimistic as, as, as we are about opportunity uh, is, is exciting. Awesome. Scott, thank you so much. Uh, you're welcome back anytime. I really appreciate your time and, and your insight. Uh, bless you, brother. Absolutely. My pleasure. Well, there he is, the legendary Scott Omalonic. And if you love this episode as much as uh, I did, why not share it with your closest 2,000 friends right now? And uh, please know we deeply appreciate your shares on social media. In times like these, being flexible and adaptable is critical to survive and thrive. And that's where my friends at Oracle NetSuite come in. You see, with NetSuite, the flexibility is built in, allowing you to scale up, spin off, change and adopt new businesses business models and do whatever you need to do to get your business done no matter what happens in the economy. NetSuite's flexibility allows you to change quickly and easily. There's a reason 63% of the recent tech IPOs run NetSuite. Go to netsuite.com today slash different. That's netsuite.com slash different. And there you can set up your free product tour, netsuite.com slash different. And legendary businesses today are digital businesses. And if we've learned one thing of late, that's that the acceleration to a digital transformation is on. And that's where my friends at Splunk come in. Splunk allows you to build a more resilient organization and accelerate cloud-driven business transformations to exceed customer expectations. As a matter of fact, Domino's turned to Splunk to reposition itself as an e-commerce company that happens to sell pizza. (laughs) The global pizza chain shifted its focus to digital channels and emerging technologies without surrendering the personal touch that goes into every pizza. And so if uh, Domino's can rely on Splunk to get digital, you can too. Check out S-P-L-U-N-K slash D, the number two, the letter E. That's Splunk.com slash D2E. All right. We would like to thank the legendary Scott O'Malanik. Thank you so much, Scott. He's the editor-in-chief of Inc. Magazine. Check out Inc.com. That's Inc.com. Also want to say a big thank you to Anne Valentino and Alyssa Fortunato for helping to make today's episode happen. My dear friends at OneLifeFullyLived.org, the nonprofit helping people in the inner city dream, plan, and live their best life. If you got a couple of shekels in your pocket and you want to make a difference, why not make a donation today at OneLifeFullyLived.org. Now, uh, do you need some help scaling you? 
Uh, why not visit my friends at bottleneck.online, the world's first dedicated distant assistant. See, they've been physically distancing before that was even a thing. So if you need an assistant who's nowhere near you, but uh, all over helping you, check out bottleneck.online today. And my friends at Atranet have been building legendary B2B websites in Silicon Valley for over 20 years. Check out atre.net. That's atre.net. And why not consider making a justice deposit, moving some of your companies or, frankly, your personal money to a black-owned bank? You see, when black banks have more money, they can lend more money. And every loan is a dream coming true. So why not make a difference for black folks in the United States of America and give them free and fair access to capital and make some justice deposits. All right, today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes. And this podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. All rights do remain perturbed. We are produced and edited by the man, the GOAT, uh, the greatest of all time in podcast production, Jason DeFilippo. Check out his podcast, Grumpy Old Geeks. Sarah Knox and Jamie J do legendary technical execution, and they build Lockhead.com. Show notes by our uh, new show notes writer, GM Simon. Welcome to the Team GM. GM. And Diane, I want to thank you so much for being with us for so long and making such a difference. Remember to spread podcasts, not viruses. Remember, the left lane is the passing lane. Prius drivers, I'm talking to you. Listen to Blue Rodeo. Kathleen Madigan was right. Check out her comedy. Thank you so much, Candy Dandy. She keeps all the trains running on time. Love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go out to Carson Sweet, CEO of Cloud Passage. Sorry, Carsey. We just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Thank you so much for the gift of your attention. Please stay healthy, stay safe, take good care of each other. And, uh, of course, until we're together again, follow your difference.